Take your Bibles tonight and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We have uh, begun this study over the last few weeks, looking at living a meaningful life and what Solomon says here about this endeavor in the book of Ecclesiastes. So tonight, we're going to finish up, Lord willing, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And we're going to look at this idea. Last time we looked at, at the futility uh, of life and the things that we experience herein in what we may call the circle of life. And tonight, uh, we look at the futility of man's wisdom. And of course, I would always remind you to understand where the book of Ecclesiastes is driving to. And that is that the whole purpose of life is to fear God and keep his commandments. And the, thing that Sol- the things that Solomon shares all throughout this book are the goads and the nails that remind us of that purpose. And what it requires is it requires a very real look at life and the experiences here without God. And without God, these are the realities of the life that we live in this world. And so tonight, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, we see the futility of man's wisdom. We read this. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, suppressing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Have you ever heard these words uttered in your home? I'm bored. You ever heard that before? If you've raised children, you've probably heard this or similar sentiments expressed. Most of that time, can we admit that the boredom is not due to a lack of toys, books, projects, or more around your house, right? You have plenty of those things. Most of the time, it comes from the fact that we, or the one expressing those thoughts, are dissatisfied with the things we have available to us. That was a big point we looked at last week, that in in life, mankind is very dissatisfied in the things that he has here. We saw that man is ever dissatisfied with the world and what we call the circle of life that repeats itself time and again. And here at the close of chapter 1 in Ecclesiastes, Solomon now demonstrates the futility and the dissatisfaction not only found in the experiences of mankind, but in man's wisdom. Just because you've given time to think things through or just because you've gained a little life experience you aren't guaranteed to be more satisfied with life. And in fact, Solomon says quite the opposite is true. And so here, uh, Solomon, as we close out chapter 1, and really the the things that are at the end of chapter 1 are going to carry over into chapter 2 next week, but we're going to see here that contemplating life in a fallen world 
forces us to realize nothing here will bring lasting satisfaction or give us meaning. And really, we should give ourselves to contemplating life and thinking about our lives and the things we experience. And so many times we don't want to stop and think about what's going on because that requires we have to face some hard things about our lives. It requires that we have to really understand that, that the difficulties that we're experiencing in life and why we have them or, why we, or, or maybe we don't know why we have them. And here Solomon is going to slow down and he's going to give himself and all of his faculties to contemplating with his great wisdom and, and experience and knowledge everything that's here in life and all the things man experience, and he's going to come down to this idea that, that nothing here, once again, nothing here on this earth is going to bring you lasting satisfaction, and nothing here in this life by itself is going to give you meaning. Because again, Solomon is looking at things as they are under the sun in this temporary world without an eternal perspective. And as we've said before, the eternal perspective is woven throughout the book of Ecclesiastes because of where it's driving in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So let's look tonight at what Solomon talks about in these verses. We're going to look really at two big sections here tonight, and the first one comes in verses 12 through 15, and we see there wisdom's investigation. Solomon had a great gift from God of wisdom. We saw in our first week how he acquired this or was given this from God, and God came to him when he was newly minted as king of Israel. And so what you have in verses 12 through the first part of 13 is you meet this man who's on a mission. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So, like a detective sharing his case notes, Solomon, the preacher or teacher, appears on the scene, and he has experienced the good life as the king in Jerusalem. He has had access to anything and everything he ever wanted in life. And beyond this, he has been gifted with unparalleled wisdom to understand these things. And so, like any king, Solomon has goals and aspirations he has conquests and challenges to undertake. You know, it's the pride of a king to go on these conquests or undertake these challenges or do these things for his greatness. And you understand that in Solomon's life, Solomon was not a man of war. Solomon was not like his father who led uh, troops into battle. In fact, Solomon inherited a largely peaceful kingdom and experienced that peace throughout most of his reign. So the conquest and the challenges and the things that Solomon tackled were a little bit different. So here, he speaks of one of these conquests he has undertaken in life. Because of his unique position of king of Israel, and because of his gift of wisdom from the Lord, Solomon states that he has undertaken the task of investigating everything on this earth. The poem we saw last time communicates the futility of the temporal and Solomon has given serious thought and consideration to the temporal world. The words he uses here communicate his devotion to this pursuit. He says here, first of all, that he applied his heart to this. That is, he engaged his mind and his entire being in this quest to search these things out. 
And to what did he apply his heart? He says here he applied his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He uses these two different terms that he was seeking and that he was searching. You know what that indicates? It indicates here that Solomon didn't go halfway in his pursuit to find meaning. He literally gave it everything he had and everything he was. He wanted to know. He had put to use all the mental faculties and all the special insight that God gave him. And he gave his entire being to this quest. He wished to know the meaning and the value of life on this earth. He wished and wanted to understand life without God. What it was worth and what one gained by it. And so... As Solomon is this man who's on a mission, we see the observances that he makes from this investigation. In verses thir- the second part of verse 13 into verse 15, we'll come across these observances. We'll take them one by one. At the end of verse 13, we read this. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. Now, how many of you, that's your life verse? It is an unhappy business what God has given us, right? What Solomon says here, first of all, is that in life, there is a God-ordained weariness to this life. Here is a statement that I think we'll probably get some amens. Life is hard. You agree with that? It's hard to argue that, right? Even as a young person, you have probably begun to realize kids or teens, there's some things in life that are hard. Certainly as adults, we come to realize life is very hard. Sin has made this world a very difficult place to live. The earth fights back at man's efforts to tame it and to use it. Our bodies wear out and they make activity difficult. I was texting my sister today. It's her birthday. She's three years younger than I am, so she's in her. She she was laughing this morning because now she says I'm in. I can say I'm in my thirties, and what does that mean? I said it means that everything hurts, right? She goes, yeah. She sent me this picture last night. They went rock climbing for her birthday. I don't know who does that for their birthday, okay? But and she said we went rock climbing. I can barely move. I'm like, yeah. Welcome to life, right? And we're just in our thirties. I, I hear it gets worse as it goes on. Does it get better? Is that right? Okay. Our bodies wear out. Relationships in our lives take effort to maintain. And all the while, as was observed in the previous poem, the question becomes this. What does it really matter? You live. You die. The earth continues to spin. Right? Again, understand that this is, this is Solomon. Helping us look at life without God. What does it really matter? You live, you die, you struggle, the earth continues on. The burden of life presses down on mankind. So it is indeed what Solomon says. It is an unhappy business, or your translation may say a grievous or burdensome task that man undertakes in this life. But here's an interesting thing that Solomon says. It is not just that is an unhappy business or a grievous or burdensome task, but where does that unhappy business come from? What does it say in verse 13? Who gives it to man? God. Well, that's an interesting statement. That God has given man this unhappy business. 
Why is it that a task like this is given to man by the Lord? Well, number one, it's because all life is a gift from God. Whether you acknowledge it or not, the life you have is a gift from God. He's the one who created you. He's the one who sustains you. He's the one who is over all things. We continue to live and to breathe because he ordains it to be so. God continues to act in his creation. He didn't wind up creation and let it go. And as the sovereign ruler, he sets the rules. That's the second thing. Not only is it that we have life, this is God's gift to us because all life is a gift from God, but secondly, it is ordained by God and a a God-ordained weariness in our lives because God is the sovereign ruler and he sets the rules. The consequences of sin, God says, are death and hardship. It should be no surprise to us that life is difficult. God said it would be. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, God said this, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Life on earth is hard because of sin. We struggle against the things of this world. We struggle against ourselves because of sin. So here's the truth then. Life without God is even harder. At his core, man is made in the image of God, though broken and marred by sin. And at his core, man is made as a worshiper of God. We said that here before, that God has made us to be worshipers. And so, when we, when, we, when we don't commune with the one that we were given, that we were made to have communion with, when we don't have a relationship with God who created us to have a relationship with him, we feel that in our being, in the core of our soul. There is, as one, as one person has said it, a God-shaped vacuum inside each man's heart and nothing else can fill it. And yet we try to fill it with all sorts of things, right? We throw jobs and money and relationships and vices and pleasures and fun and vacations and you name it. We throw it at that vacuum in the, center, in the middle of our heart and it never fills it up. Maybe it distracts us for a time. Maybe it satiates some temporal need for a few minutes. But it always comes back and it continues to eat away at us. And so without God, life is exactly what Solomon says it is. It is an unhappy business. It is a grievous and burdensome task. It is a God-ordained weariness that we experience in our lives. Second, Solomon observes in verse 14 that life is also then a fruitless chase. He says in verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Solomon has observed, and will soon learn, he also has experimented with everything mankind attempts to fill his life with in order to find meaning. He's observed everything in this temporal, transient world, which he calls under the sun. 
And as he ponders and meditates on the pursuits of man and what it gains him, he draws this conclusion, that it is vanity, or it is hevel, right? The Hebrew word. It is empty. It is meaningless. It, it is, it is a, an illusion that is there and that is gone. Man's attempt to grasp meaning from life, or man attempts to grasp meaning from life, and it's gone. He attempts to secure a sense of purpose and accomplishment, and it dissipates in his hand. And Solomon likens this to striving after the wind. You can go outside when it's windy, and you can chase the wind around all you want. You can try to catch it, but you never will. The wind is impossible to secure. We can feel it, we can see what it does, but we can't hold it in our hands. And if you really believed that you could catch the wind, and thus you engaged in an all-out pursuit of it, you would wind up frustrated, tired, defeated, and depending how hard you committed to chasing the wind, you might end up in a psych ward, right? Because people say, look at that crazy guy running around out there with a net, right? I think he needs help. So just as one cannot corral the wind... One cannot find meaning in this life or understand it with a merely temporal perspective. It's frustrating, it's demoralizing, it's empty, it's, it's hevel, right? If nothing else, you're going to learn at least one Hebrew word all throughout this study, okay? Man's wisdom can't make sense of it. Endless energy is expounded only to get you nowhere. That's the thing. It's a fruitless chase. You're expending energy. You're expending energy. I got to try to understand it. I got to try to make something out of it. I got to, I got to, I got to. And all of this energy is going out, but it's not doing anything. It's just dissipating. It's not getting you anywhere. Solomon then says, as he investigates this with his wisdom in verse 15, that life is full of frustrating enigmas. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. It's a very poetic statement that Solomon uses here to show this. That the things that are crooked in life cannot be straightened out. That there are gaps also in our understanding. Things in this life happen to us that we can't unravel no matter how hard we try. We can't come up with a reason why this happened, or that happened, or how we can make this better, or make this go away, or how we can understand this. There is a divide that opens between our understanding and our experiences. You ever had that divide open in your life? I experienced this, and I want to understand it, and there's this chasm between what I've experienced and what I'm trying to wrestle with my mind, and I don't know how to straighten out the crooked path, and I don't know how to get over the gaps in my understanding. And Solomon tells us that we won't be able to reconcile them no matter how hard we try. And if Solomon tells us this, we can mark it down because he's a man full of wisdom and understanding. There are certain things in life you're just not going to be able to reconcile. Why? Because you're not the ultimate authority, you're temporal, you're finite, you're not the sovereign ruler. And if you think you can exalt yourself to a place of such vaunted understanding, Solomon says you're wrong. 
The crooked paths of this life cannot be straightened out by man's wisdom or efforts. The missing pieces cannot be conjured up. This is the futility of life lived outside the creator. It's an enigma. It is ever full of activity, but it never satisfies. The times of quiet are filled with turmoil and an unsatisfied quest for understanding. And these are the things that Solomon has observed. He's looked at life. He's observed it. He's watched it. He's experienced it. And he says, this is what life is. And now, he looks at those things and he reflects on them and gives us his conclusion. So in verses 16 through 18, you see wisdom's reflection. And in verse 16 to the first part of verse 17, you see here the accomplished investigator. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Solomon says basically here he's left no stone unturned. He has plumbed the depths of human understanding, trying to make sense of it all. In verse 16, Solomon just tells it like it is. I mean, you read verse 16, you're like, wow, I mean, this guy, you know, he... He, um, he, he's kind of full of himself, right? I mean, he's acquired great wisdom. He surpassed all who were over Jerusalem before me. But, but what Solomon says is the truth. He's the wisest man who's ever lived because God gave him that gift. If anyone was going to make sense of it all, it was him. He took the God, the gift, think about it this way. He took the gift that God gave him and he gave it to a pursuit of reconciling life without God a fascinating thing, isn't it? That you would take what God gave you and you would apply it towards a godless lifestyle. He gave it, he says there, to all manner of madness and folly. He says he gave it to wisdom and he gave it to madness and folly. He gave it to the good things, he gave it to the bad things. He went out there and he did it all. He left no mental stone unturned. He left no pleasure out of his mind. He sought the answers for life deep within himself and in all of the wisdom mankind had to offer. Because at its heart, wisdom has a concern for truth. Solomon wanted to know the truth. And so he gave himself wholly to that pursuit. He wanted to apply all the knowledge he could to this endeavor. He was the accomplished investigator. He is the reliable source. His findings are inspired by God to be written down for us today. Now, this is not to say that Solomon is encouraging us to follow him on his path of madness and folly, but he's saying, listen to me, I've done it. And in verse 17, into verse 18, we read his investigative conclusions on this matter. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Once again, Solomon likens something to striving after the wind. This time, what is it he likens? Well, it is his investigation into finding meaning for things in this life outside of God. He gave himself to the deepest and greatest considerations of these things. He held nothing back in his mental ascents, but it was for naught. It was chasing the wind. Solomon gave himself to that which he enjoyed 
and was most talented at. And he came away frustrated. He couldn't make sense of it all. And in fact, you notice what he says? He says the problem only got worse. In this very last poetic line in verse 18, he expresses the perplexing phenomenon that the more he investigated and the more he searched for answers, the worse the problem got. He couldn't alleviate the depression of his, the depression of his soul, his mental anguish, that's the word vexation, and his sadness of heart, the word sorrow, actually increased. When you try to make sense of life on your own, you're going to run into these issues. The more you think about the problem, the greater the problem is going to become. Maybe you've experienced that in your life. As you have this problem facing you, instead of going to the Lord, you begin to turn that problem over in your mind, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and greater and greater, and you don't know what you're going to do with it, right? The more you try to reason through the issues... The darker it gets, the more you try to fix it, the harder and the messier it seems to get. Why do you think people give themselves to all manner of census-dulling substances in this life? Because they can't deal with the pain of life. It's too hard. So if I drink a little of this and I smoke a little of that and I pop a few of these pills, I feel better about my life. Why? Because I don't have to think about it anymore. Because they've tried that. They've tried thinking about it. They've tried figuring it out on their own, and it didn't work. Why do you think psychologists' offices and their schedules are jammed? Because people have driven themselves mad in a quest for truth within themselves that they're never going to find. In man's heart, there is no truth. In man's soul, there are no answers. In man's being, there is no satisfaction. There are only more lies. There are only more questions. There are only more cravings. And so the vicious cycle continues. It just gets worse. Just as the circle of life envelops mankind in his actions, so too the wisdom of man cycles in an endless, fruitless loop. The more we know, the more ignorant we seem to be. The more knowledge we gain, the more helpless we feel, and the more explanations we need. This is the way of wisdom under the sun. I mean, just look, I mean, look beyond the personal. I gave you some personal illustrations of the way that we see this happen that spirals in people's lives. But just look at the world we live in. We make these great inventions, right? And then we start investigating what our inventions do to the, to the world that we live in. And then now we've made the problem worse and we study it. Okay, now we need to do this in order to counteract that. And then we investigate the counteraction that we took to the problem and what happens? Well, then that has this side effect and that does this, this and this. Why? Because this is how man's wisdom is. It happens all the time in our lives. Contemplating life in a fallen world then forces us to realize nothing here will bring lasting satisfaction or give us meaning. Without God, life is impossible to understand. That's because our wisdom is infinitesimally small compared to the wisdom of God. In fact, 
Paul reminded us of this when he said in 1 Corinthians 1.25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So we need the wisdom of God to walk through this life in a meaningful way. Oftentimes, you know what that wisdom does? It calls us to rest in God and be at peace with not being able to understand all the answers right here and right now. You understand that, that a relationship with God doesn't offer you answers to everything that's, that's going on in your heart at that moment in your life. It offers you a relationship with the one who does know all things and who is sovereign all things. It offers you a peace with God. There are countless things in my own life that I have tried and failed to understand and I have had to leave at the throne of God. Sometimes hindsight allows me to see a different perspective in God's grace. Other times I still don't know why something happened. I still don't know why I had that experience. I still don't know why that person is not lo- no longer in my life because of death or a relationship if you. I still don't understand why this happened or why that happened or why God did this or allowed that. But I trust that God does. And one of the greatest displays of God's wisdom and the way that he works is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is something far beyond our understanding and our comprehension. The mercy, love, and grace poured out on Calvary requires our faith and our trust. If you really sit back and contemplate the cross, you're going to come to this conclusion. We don't know why God did it that way, but we're sure glad he did. Right? Because I've I've had this conversation with people. They come by my office or we talk somewhere else and they say, you know, if you were God and you knew everyone was, you know people were going to sin and they're going to rebel against you, why create them in the first place? The answer I give every time is, I have no idea. Because God is God, he is sovereign and he is loving beyond anything you and I can ever imagine. So in his infinite wisdom and his grace, he created mankind knowing that mankind would rebel and knowing that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, and knowing that he would die on the cross and rise again and offer us eternal life with him. I don't know why he did it, but I'm glad he did. It is because of Jesus that we have hope for eternity. It is because of Jesus that we can have confidence in our lives for the future in God. 